life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. with John McChrystal. The peculiarly named Royal Charter, it sounds like a piece of Valum rather than a ship. This was 1859 and I think importantly the height of the Australian gold rush. John? That's exactly right. Uh, she was purpose-built really to carry the masses of people who were travelling between the old country, the United Kingdom, and Australia, where, as you say, the gold rush was in full swing. So there were fortunes to be made. As it turns out, there were also fortunes and lives to be lost in that trade as well. This became a very famous wreck because its legacy meant a lot of changes, also because of the prospect of treasure, which was found. Well, there's been a heck of a lot found, but there's also been a heck of a lot still lying around on the sea floor just off the coast of Wales there. So it still draws people, aided by the fact that it's a very shallow wreck. So you can spend quite a lot of time on the bottom without worrying about the bends or things biting you or currents sweeping you away, that kind of thing. So, And the phrase perfect storm could have been used for it because she's as famous for the storm which sunk her as she was for the loss of life and goods as well. That's right. We talk about the Wahine storm in New Zealand and they talk about the Royal Charter storm in the United Kingdom. It was a turning point in the way they did things with regard to warning people about what the weather was about to do. And it's remembered because it was just calamitous in terms of its impact on shipping and on human life. And also that sort of drama of being so close but so far away, making it all the way around half the globe and then to be wrecked in this dreadful storm. Okay, tell us about the Royal Charter then. The Royal Charter was purpose-built for the run between Liverpool and Melbourne. She was an iron vessel. She was a clipper, so she's one of these very fast three-masted sailing vessels. But she was an auxiliary clipper, which means that she also had a steam engine aboard. The idea of the steam engine was the inconvenience travelling from one hemisphere to the other is that somewhere in between hemispheres you would get caught in the doldrums where the wind leaves you alone for a few weeks and you drift around. You could be there for a month and a half or so before the breeze finally returned or you drifted your way out. Whack a steam engine aboard and you can just plod your way through that flat patch of water and then pick up the wind again. And that greatly increased both the comfort and the speed with which people could make the passage. She was 72 metres long. Close to the length of a football pitch if you miss out the last 22. That's right. It looks pretty substantial really, doesn't it? Mm. And she was. She was a big, fast, comfortable vessel. She was launched in 1855, so... Four years later, the time frame we're discussing, she was still pretty much brand new. The so-called gold ships, the ships that were making this run out to Australia, had built this reputation of solidity, reliability and speed and comfort 
there was this aura around them because people went out as down-at-heel immigrant in their early 20s, nothing in prospect for them in the UK, and they came back decked with gold, just well blinged up. There was this real aura around both the ships and the trade, and the Royal Charter was the beginning of, of a period in which that reputation began to be tarnished. The passengers, many, many people sailing from around the world to make their fortunes in gold, their passage back, it was this sort of ship that was going to seal all their efforts. You've done it. You've gone to the gold fields. You've got it. Now you're going home. It was the last hurdle. Once you were there, you were home and dry, literally. It would be the crowning moment when you stepped ashore at Liverpool of what must have seemed like the most desperate enterprise imaginable when you left four or five years earlier. Mm. Those who are known to have been aboard this ship, there were very, very few people above the age of 40, and most of those were senior members of the crew. Most of these people, being young when they'd gone out, having secured their futures as far as they could tell by finding a lot of gold, Many of them had met and married people and even had children. And there were a lot of women and a lot of children aboard this vessel as well. I haven't counted them, but when you run your finger down the passenger list, more often than not, you have the name and then it says with family or with two children or with wife and two children kind of thing. So there are a lot of children aboard and all very young. I understand there are quite a few people embarking at the last minute. How accurate is the passenger list, or do we know? No, we don't even know that, really, because the passenger list that survives was drawn up two days before she left. As is always the way with transport of any description, there was that last-minute rush of people showing up hoping they could get a passage aboard her. Their names would have been recorded, but that passenger manifest was aboard the ship and went down with her. It was never recovered. We've got a pretty good idea of how many people were aboard, we reckon there were about 388 passengers and 112 crew, but there are likely to have been more. It seems a lot of people, doesn't it? I'm just imagining the Royal Charter, the sizes described, going from the tri-line to the 22. You put 112 plus 388 in that space. <laughs> Goodness me, the whole thing's a scrum. That's right. And a lot of the ship, needless to say, is taken up by holds. She had quite a big cargo hold because there was money to be made there as well. A lot of space and certainly the more salubrious areas of the ship were given over to first class accommodation, of course. There were three classes of passenger aboard, but the real money was made for the ship owner by the steerage passengers who you could just cram in in these mass dormitories. They had very little in the way of public areas. They lived right next to their own toilets and uh, they never really saw the top side of the ship apart from a couple of hours a day for their health. Miserable conditions, but not so bad aboard this ship as aboard many other immigrant ships and some of the other ships that made the same voyage. Specifically built for the Liverpool-Melbourne run for the gold rush, how successful had these runs been? What kind of steaming, sailing had she done previously to her final fateful voyage. She'd done a few voyages and she'd gained a reputation for being very fast and comfortable. Yeah, the steam engine was doing its job. You can buy a few things in Melbourne with the gold that you've found, but in order to make yourself rich, you take it back to England, which is where the ship was going. And she was carrying a lot of gold. She was carrying a heap of gold. She was carrying around 68 ounces of gold dust and over £48,000 worth, contemporary values, in sovereigns. That's the declared cargo. Needless to say, a lot of these miners going back, they weren't going to entrust their cash to anyone else. 
they'd fought so hard to get it. The Victorian goldfields didn't promote a sense of the benevolence of your fellow human beings. Theft and murder was rife. You tended to be quite cagey about how rich you'd struck it. A lot of these people would have gone aboard with money either sewn into their clothes, secreted in their baggage. Some people never left their cabins because they were going to sit on their stash and no one was going to come near it. Yeah, so anxious about that, weren't they? It has been attested to on successful journeys that people would just stay in their cabin the whole time. Yep, you'd worked so hard to do it. You'd taken such great risks to win that stuff. You weren't going to let it out of your sight. The final voyage of the Royal Charter, most famous wreck, 1859. Just imagine her at the dock, Port Phillip Bay, creaking a little, waiting to take gold miners and their gold back. The final hurdle to make the entire adventure a success. Tuned in to Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. The Royal Charter this week, made for the purpose of travelling from Liverpool to Melbourne and back, carrying gold and passengers after panning away in the gold fields. She's at the dock, 388 passengers, 112 crew, plus GST, we would think, for the last minuteers. As far as bad luck goes, the delay in her departure would mean that she'd arrive at a bad time in England. Yeah, you can look at all those things with the benefit of hindsight and and say, oh, it's bad luck they were two days delayed because that put them in harm's way. You can also look at the fact that she actually made a record passage getting back to the UK and that put her in harm's way. Interestingly, with the benefit of hindsight, a man who had served as her surgeon came forward and told the newspapers that he was never that happy with the construction of the ship and that in a heavy sea he'd known her deck to work so that you could see the planks moving like the keys of a piano, (coughs) which sounds a bit alarming. He says he's never been so wet aboard a ship as he was aboard the Royal Charter in a heavy sea. Uh, most other ships of her size and type seem to ride the sea much better, but she seemed to wear quite a lot of it. Whether all that's true or whether that's just something that occurs to someone when they hear of tragedy, who knows? But tragedy definitely struck. She left on the 26th of August 1859 with at least 388 passengers, roughly in today's terms 150 million New Zealand dollars worth of gold in her declared cargo, as well as woolen hides, which was the standard standard cargo leaving Australia for England in those days as well. She nearly struck an iceberg in the Southern Ocean. On the 4th of September, her second officer was at the helm and the dread cry went up, iceberg ahead. He took evasive action and it worked. They narrowly missed smacking into an iceberg in the dark and in reduced visibility. It could have been that we would never have heard anything more of the Royal Charter or Mm. her people or her gold. And of course, that was the fate of another of these gold ships, the Madagascar, around the same time. She sailed from Melbourne and was never heard from again. And you can presume that that was her fate. She struck an object at sea. The passage other than that was incredibly fast for the time too. I mean, they were really skiting that uh, in a couple of months you'll be in England. Yeah, it was a record crossing. And they arrived at Queenstown on Island. These days it's known as Cobb, the small port near the town of Cork. Once they landed there on October the 24th, they landed 13 passengers. They telegraphed their safe arrival, and this was duly transmitted to Australia. 
several of the passengers managed to telegraph ahead to Liverpool and say we're only a few hours away. We've had a great passage. I'll be with you soon. Love and kisses. They took aboard 11 riggers who had been working on a coal vessel and they were bound back for Liverpool. Stories of good luck, stories of bad luck, they just always surround these episodes. There were signs of bad weather. There was a falling barometer and crude though the instruments were in those days, every sea captain knew that this was a harbinger of bad weather. How bad, no one really knew. In fact, what was happening was there was something pretty closely resembling a North Atlantic hurricane already smashing the English Channel coast. But none of this, of course, was known on the other side of England, which is where all the action is happening here. We're in the Irish Sea. They've collected the data that was available then. Of course, communications, they couldn't join the dots, so to speak. But they've recreated the path and the shape of this hurricane. It does look like a hurricane, doesn't it? And how, just by fate, it seemed to target this ship. It just made a beeline for the same area. It's amazing. And again, you look at these things, you look at the Wahine storm, pretty much any storm that seems to have had it in for a ship, there does look something personal about the way it's gone about its business. This storm arrived on the English Channel side and it caused mayhem over there. It sank ships, it took lives, it crossed the English landmass, but it was very slow about it. So almost as though it was just waiting for the Royal Charter to arrive on station. No sooner had she arrived, the storm did as well. This is just off the coast of North Wales, the famous island, barely an island, of Anglesey. That's right. It's just south of Liverpool. It's an obstacle, really, that the Royal Charter needed to go around in order to make her approach to Liverpool. In the late hours of the evening on October the 24th was just off Holyhead, which is one of the ports, one of the available places where she could have sheltered. She could have put back to Queenstown in Ireland or she could have put in at Holyhead had she had any sense of what was about to happen. But the fact she didn't, you can presume that the master had no real idea how bad the weather was about to get. It was subsequently speculated that he made a terrible blunder by hugging the coast. But when it's borne in mind that he had a favourable breeze, a breeze blowing straight off the land, he had no real inkling that what he was doing was going to be his undoing. He was very close in. He could have put into Holyhead where there had been a three-kilometre-long breakwater under construction to improve the shelter available. It wasn't quite finished, but it still would have done the trick. But he had no sense of danger at this stage. So he was sailing before a fair breeze around the coast of the Isle of Anglesey. He hoped to pick up a pilot just off the coast, and so when he came around the bunch of rocks known as the Scaries off Point Linus on that extremity of the Isle of Anglesey, he was firing blue rockets and he was burning blue lanterns, indicating that he wanted a pilot to attend him. No one came. And the reason for this was the weather was beginning to deteriorate, and it was pretty obvious to all who knew the area well that they were in for something pretty rugged. It was already bad enough that the Welsh pilots wouldn't leave port to come out and attend the ship. The seas must have been awful at this stage even, even though the ship at this stage is safe. At this stage, the sea wasn't too bad because most of the driver of the sea was still on the landward side. Such sea as they had would have been whipped up into a bit of a chop by this very strong offshore breeze. But what happens now is the moment he comes around Point Linus, the wind switches direction pretty much 180 degrees. It goes from a westerly to going east-northeast. From blowing him off the point he's just come around, it's now trying to blow him directly onto it. There's not a lot a sea captain can do about that. Basically, a trap has been sprung on him. He's no longer got the options that were available to him just before he came round this piece of rock. 
before he could have beat out of the bay and placed himself safely in the middle of the Irish Sea. That was his best option other than seeking shelter. There is no longer any shelter available to him and he can no longer seek the safety of the sea as well. Seeking the safety of the sea seems counterintuitive to land lovers like me, but it means you're away from rocks which are going to break you up. No matter how mountainous or awful the sea may be, the sea is safer. That's right. Ships are pretty much designed to withstand whatever the sea can throw at them, but what kills ships typically is the land. So the thing you do when things are cutting up rough is to get as far away from the land as you possibly can. That option was no longer available to Captain Taylor. And as the storm passes over, the wind direction changes. They've been hugging the shore with the feeling that they can get out to sea if needs be, but aha, gotcha, the storm, because it's swirling, now it's blowing the other way, and oh dear, oh dear, what must the captain at that stage be thinking? The captain must have realised that his situation was just about impossible. Not only did the wind swing around, but it gained in intensity very, very rapidly, and it rapidly escalated to the point where it was force 10 on what's known as the Beaufort scale. That was developed by Rear Admiral Francis Beaufort in 1805 and officially adopted as a description of nasty wind in 1830. So force 10 is described as very high waves with overhanging crests. Large patches of foam from wave crests give the sea a white appearance. Considerable tumbling of waves with heavy impact. Large amounts of airborne spray reduce visibility. Wellington <laughs> Harbour, 1968. That's right. A wind up to 100 kilometres per hour. In fact, the Wahine storm exceeded Force 10 and got up as high as Force 12, which, in fact, the Royal Charter Storm did. Very similar weather events in many ways. Captains proceeding on the assumption that the weather was doing one thing and then the weather very rapidly made all those assumptions the cause of their undoing. What is the strategy of a captain given this perilous decision, as the Rabuki goes to, like they do in the cockpit of an airplane when something goes wrong? What's the procedure? What, how, what's the best way to try and save yourself? They apparently had a number of attempts at trying to beat off the land and couldn't do it. The only two options available to him then were his steam engine and his anchors. They tried the steam engine, but of course this is designed to plod them along in calm weather through calm seas. It's not designed to propel them against a wind of this magnitude. And don't forget all that windage you've got up there. You've got the masts with their sails, and they are producing far more force than this poor little labouring steam engine down in the bilges can do. But nevertheless, he tries it, and it's pretty clear that he's going to leeward faster than he's going to windward. For God's sake. The wind is carrying him in. Take the sails down, then. Yes, more than that, take the sails down and then cut the masts down. Had he proceeded to chop his mast down at that point, there's a reasonable chance that he either could have made some headway with his engine or he could have anchored more successfully. But his next move was to drop his anchors, and so he's lying to with his anchors down and using the engine to ease the weight on the cables. Now, this is a two-edged sword because anchors are at their best when there's constant strain on them. What they can't really stand or what the chains attaching them to the ground can't stand is sort of a jerking motion. When you're steaming against a heavy sea and a heavy wind, needless to say, you're making headway sometimes and then you're being blown back at others. And that's producing precisely that kind of jerking strain that you don't want to be applying to your ground tackle. It does get to the stage where he chops down the masts though, doesn't it? 
Yeah, eventually what happens first is first one anchor gives way. That has the effect of bringing in broadside onto the storm and increasing windage. In other words, the wind's got more to get a purchase on. And so a short time later, and this is around sort of 3.30 in the morning, the second anchor cable goes as well. So he's now drifting onto the shore and there's nothing much he can do about it. He needed to have got his masts down sooner. That's his next step. And he has no opportunity to do that until the ship strikes, which she does around four in the morning on a sandbank. She slaps into that and is brought up short. All of the passengers are put into the safety of the lower saloon, which is on the lower deck, and they proceed to chop the masts down. They get the main mast down and the foremast down, and then the mizzen mast comes down of its own accord because most of the stays that are holding it up go with the other masts. There wouldn't be a soul on board that wasn't perfectly informed of the perilous nature of their situation. Yeah, apparently up to the moment where they struck, there was still a relatively calm atmosphere prevailing aboard. The passengers were mostly down below and no one was running down saying put on life jackets or anything like that because, of course, they didn't have any. They weren't saying muster at the lifeboats because, of course, they didn't have any. Basically, everyone lived or died with the ship. That was understood. And at this stage, the ship didn't seem to be in mortal peril. She strikes the bottom, and even then the captain seems to have taken that as a good sign, because as he passed through the saloon, he apparently said cheerfully to the female passengers there, we're on a sandy beach, the tide's going out, and soon we'll be able to walk ashore. If only he'd been right. The Royal Charter this week, 1859. Weekend Variety Wireless. The Royal Charter, a ship specifically made to take gold and people to cash in their fortune from such hard work in the gold fields of Australia from there to Liverpool and back in record time. The very, very last hurdle for a lot of people to fulfil this great adventure and to make the profit and have their dreams come true. So close, but so far. And she's in big trouble with something like a perfect storm blowing her on to the shore of Anglesey. John. And by now the weather has got worse, just to compound things for them. The wind has produced a huge swell, which is battering the ship as she's pinned on a sandbank. It's now Force 12, which is described as sea is completely white with foam and spray. Air is filled with driving spray, greatly reduced visibility. The wind can be 118 kilometres per hour or greater, and it can be presumed it was significantly greater at this point. We are actually in the lower end of the hurricane range at this stage, and the effect is quite predictable. This is a nasty bit of coast, and it's quite well equipped for saving life at sea. There's a lifeboat stationed in the village of Mulfray, which is directly inshore from where this event is taking place. Apparently someone climbing up on his roof to try to secure it against the storm happened to glance over his ridgeline and see something dark in the water offshore. So he spread the alarm through the village and most of the villagers went to the clifftops and there they saw the Royal Charter lying broadside onto the huge swell pinned on the sandbank offshore. They couldn't launch the lifeboat. Conditions were so extreme they just couldn't put it out. As they watched, there was an attempt to launch one of the Royal Charter's own boats. There were four people aboard it, went into the sea and was capsized immediately. Amazingly, it was tipped up again and three were still aboard it. It was tipped over again and this time the wave actually smashed a hole in the bottom. Someone's hand came up and sort of waved feebly through the hole and then the whole lot was lost to sight. That was the only attempt at launching a boat and that's about as successful as it was ever going to be. And all this tragedy unfolds with an audience on the cliff. So close by. 
That's right, and parts of the ship were no more than around 20 yards away, so it was that close. But you can imagine the size of the seas that are breaking around and over the vessel at this stage. There are a few options. There's nothing the captain can do to influence the fate of his vessel. He just has to hope that she's going to hold together and that when conditions abate, they can effect their rescue. One man by the name of Giuseppe Ruches, he's Maltese, and everyone aboard, not knowing much foreign lingo, called him Joseph Rogers. Joseph Rogers volunteered to take a line and try to get ashore so that they could secure a stronger line and start running people to the rocks that way. His offer is accepted, needless to say. They tie a rope around his middle, he jumps in, and as everyone watches in this absolutely insane sea breaking on the rocks... He gets ashore and manages to haul himself up. He's very badly injured, but he's done it. They manage to attach this light line to a hawser, which is a very thick and strong line, and that's made fast between ship and shore. There's now a call for all the ladies to come on deck so that they can be conveyed by sort of a flying fox arrangement with what's known as a bosun's chair, just a sling, really, that you sit in that can be hauled backwards and forwards between ship and shore. There's a pretty general movement by the passengers from the saloon below decks onto the deck. As luck would have it, at that moment, the ship chooses her moment to break in half, directly where the main bulk of the passengers are standing. She's an iron vessel, so when she goes in half, she turns into just a great big pair of pliers, really, as she works to and fro in the storm. And the end of some of the people who fell into the gap between halves of the ship can only be imagined minced and again with an audience on the cliff just a few yards away really. That's right. Apparently it was around nine in the morning and the ship went with two loud thumps and broke in half and then was accompanied with the death cry of hundreds as the newspapers put it. A man named James Russell was aboard. He and his wife and two daughters were on the after part of the ship when she broke in half. So the only means of getting ashore is the line which is secure to the bow of the ship. So that might as well not exist as far as they're concerned. They can see it, but they can't reach it. They're clinging to the after rail of the vessel, and while they have the opportunity to do so, they all say their farewells to one another. They get washed overboard and somehow miraculously all find themselves back aboard again. The elder of the two daughters is pinned underneath a heavy box which James Russell manages to take off her, but at that moment they're both swept overboard again. Incredibly he manages to get aboard for a second time he grabs his younger daughter there's no sign of the elder anymore and then he's washed overboard for the third and final time. His grip on his daughter is lost, he grabs at objects in the water hoping they're her but the next thing he's aware of is a man standing upright over him. He reaches up a hand and grasps it, and then the wave drags him away again. Another wave carries him in, the hand grabs him, and he's pulled ashore, and he's alive. He looks back at the vessel, and he can't see a living thing aboard her anymore, so his family are gone. The incredible heroism of a man named George Sinclair has to be mentioned. What had happened is the villagers had formed a human chain, holding on to one another with the strongest and bravest at the end, trying to grab people in Russell's position, being washed up by a wave and then dragged back again. Russell was one of the ones they managed to save, but of course they didn't manage to save very many at all. So George Sinclair apparently was the sharp end of this human chain until he literally couldn't do it anymore and he collapsed and was dragged away and nearly lost his own life just through sheer exertion. A dreadful sight for these people, but worse, of course, for those aboard. 
And families, of course, because, as you mentioned earlier, they've spent a long time in the goldfields of Victoria. People just seeing their families ripped apart. That's right. They had everything. They had a bright future ahead of them. They had a new family. Everything was looking like Providence was smiling on them. And then their worst nightmare, probably beyond their worst nightmare, came true. None of the women and none of the children survived the shipwreck. Only 39 did out of at least 500 souls. Most of those were crew and there were a few passengers as well. The reason I guess that crew survived is just stronger and fitter and just slightly more familiar with the way the sea works, slightly more able to handle themselves in the swell. Then again, it could be sheer dumb luck. You just don't know. A little boy died within sight of his home and his father. Yes. Now, I can't work out whether this is just urban legend or not, or village legend or not, but supposedly there's a young Welshman who went out to Australia aboard this vessel. He had the presentiment of bad luck, and then supposedly he was on the foredeck of the Royal Charter, and he was within sight of his own home, which was in the village of Mulfray, and he could see his father standing on the cliffs, and he apparently yelled out to him and was heard before he was lost overboard. I can't find any contemporary confirmation of that. I think it's a legend that grew up. Sort of hope it is. Bad enough as it is, John. Absolutely. We'll take a break and come back with the aftermath and how it affected many, many things, including the village nearby and literature from one of the world's greatest. Weekend Variety Wireless. 1859, the wreck of the Royal Charter. Northern Wales, a hair's breadth away from Liverpool and completing the great adventure of getting rich from the goldfields of Australia and making it home to cash it all in and the dream coming true but it was thwarted by an incredible storm which forced the Royal Charter onto the rocks off the coast of Anglesey in plain sight of villages, only yards away, unable to help other than making a human chain. No women and children survived at all? No, not a single woman, not a single child survived this wreck. Who did survive? There were about 11 crew and the rest were passengers, so they were all men. The bosun's chair arrangement, which was strung up, only worked for around two people before the ship broke up and the horser itself broke as well. The aftermath. Needless to say, you had bodies washing up, a profusion of bodies washing up, and apparently such was the violence of the storm that it was actually tossing gold sovereigns onto the shore as well. Now, gold normally settles straight down and stays there, so to be flung around like that is some testimony to the violence of the wave action that's going on. It tainted... Anglo-Welsh relations this episode because there were allegations that the villagers had got fabulously rich not only by picking up stray sovereigns off the beach but also rifling the pockets of the dead. It's not true and one of the people whom this kind of allegation offended was no lesser figure than Charles Dickens, best known as a novelist these days but he was also one of history's greatest journalists. He'd founded a journal and he contributed to it quite regularly and the second of his contributions was about this episode and the series was eventually collected into a volume called The Uncommercial Traveller. It's a beautiful read, it really is. Dickens seems to have been deeply offended by the tone and just the mudslinging that went on after this. 
he'd heard contrary stories about just how humanely and heroically the villagers of Mulfrey had behaved in the aftermath and during this awful storm. So he went out to have a look for himself. The piece begins with a remarkable description of the wreck site. Dickens himself is sitting on the clifftop. It's a beautiful, calm day. There are bits of wreckage everywhere, but he reckons that... So peaceful is everything that it's hard to imagine that even those aren't just parts of nature. He idly tosses a stone over the wreck because the wreck's so close, he can do that. And he watches a couple of vessels out there that are lowering divers onto it as the salvage gets underway. Really the point of a story, and there's a beautiful line in it where he says that the royal charter was driven ashore and her golden treasure of 500 souls was lost. He's not interested in the gold. He's there for the human stories. He goes and visits a man who becomes the absolute hero, really, of the aftermath of this thing, the local clergyman by the name of Stephen Roos Hughes, who was the rector of a church around three miles from where this happened. As the bodies came ashore, he stripped his church out and stacked the furniture in a nearby schoolhouse and used the church itself as a temporary morgue. Then he appointed himself head of the operation of trying to identify the remains. That involved searching the bodies for any clues. Apparently a lot of the passengers had bought cockatoos in Australia probably all from the same person who had issued them with receipts. These were personalised, so in quite a few cases, these bodies had receipts for the purchase of cockatoos with the names of the people in them. There was jewellery, there were trinkets, a lot of lockets containing pictures of loved ones, miniatures containing pictures of women. Tattoos were useful in the case of the crews, who were often tattooed so that should they be drowned, they could be identified. And then there were the slightly more intimate and heartbreaking identifiers, scars, twisted limbs. But Dickens records poignant details, such as a letter that was sent to the clergyman saying... My dearest brother had bright grey eyes and a pleasant smile. Do tell me if you managed to find him among the dead. There was little chance of identifying anyone among the dead by their bright grey eyes or their pleasant smile. Mm. This clergyman seems to have spent three weeks among the decomposing corpses that were being brought out, just looking for any the least sign that would help identify for the relatives any of the bodies that he was dealing with. He tirelessly responded to letters... By the time Dickens arrived, he'd written 1,075 letters to relatives just telling them, no, their loved one hadn't been found, or yes, they had, in some rare cases. Meanwhile, of course, he was overseeing the burial in his own churchyard of the dead. Most of them were buried in graves for a piece because they couldn't be identified, but in many cases they were. So the graves of a lot of the Royal Charter dead are identified and are there in that little churchyard. Apparently the villagers were nervous about the fact that there might not be room in the churchyard for themselves when their time came, but they didn't begrudge the dead of the Royal Charter their resting place in their churchyard either. Dickens went up there and he found a very different story. He just found one of incredible human nobility rather than the low behaviour which the British press were accusing the Welsh of. The village of Malfrey, it would loom large in their collective memories. It would be a big part of that village to this day, I would suspect. Yeah, I'd love to visit because it must be a centrepiece, this awful tragedy. Not the only one, of course. This is an awful bit of coast, and there'd been at least one major shipwreck only four miles to the north. Liverpool was a massively important port, and its importance long predated the use of technology that could keep ships safe. So a whole lot of shipping went down here. 
one of the effects of this was to convince the authorities that they needed some method of warning mariners when bad weather on this scale was on the way. There had been a Met Office within the British Board of Trade for around five years at this stage, but in 1859, a man by the name of Captain Robert Fitzroy sometime Governor of New Zealand, established the Met Office as a predictor of storms and a warner of mariners. They standardised the instrumentation that should be available in ports, set up a system, a semaphore system for gale warnings, so that this kind of tragedy should never happen again. And of course that's the forerunner of modern meteorology. It's quite remarkable that it's Robert Fitzroy with the New Zealand connection and the Charles Darwin connection who was the instigator of that. For such a weirdo, gosh he did a lot, didn't he? It's the Z-Leg. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. There was hardly a bit of significant history in yeah. the English-speaking world that he didn't feature in for a good 25 years. He was a remarkable man. The gold is there nonetheless, and there is going to be the want to go and get it rather than leave it there. This is done quite quick smart, isn't it? Nine days, apparently, after the wreck, uh, there were people there raising the gold, and they were very successful, actually. It was shallow water. It's only nine metres depth, which is very comfortable diving depths, even for the primitive diving technology available then. And given that most of the gold was still in its original packaging, they were able to cut their way in and liberate a good proportion of that gold. But roughly a third of it is reckoned still to be there. A lot of it was in the form of gold dust, and believe it or not, scuba divers go down with gold pans and pan for gold on the bottom of the sea there, with quite a good deal of success. Metal detectors are run over it all the time, and there's so much gold there that it still shows up from time to time. The occasional gold bar, plenty of gold nuggets, gold coins. There was a documentary made quite recently about the Royal Charter Shipwreck. It's a bit cheesy, but there's the poignancy as well because they raised a ring made of gold, Hungarian opal and Indian diamonds, and it was tiny because it was obviously something that belonged to a wealthy family and because it could not have belonged to an adult female, it must have belonged to the daughter of a first-class passenger. And because there were only three of them, they can say with reasonable certainty that it belonged to a little girl by the name of Ellen Fennick, aged nine when she died in this shipwreck along with the rest of her family. It doesn't take much for a shipwreck to reach through time and tap you on the shoulder when that kind of artefact is raised. Because so many of the passengers were carrying unregistered gold, they felt it much safer. Keep it on your own body. Who knows how much is there? I don't think people forget about the human tragedy that occurred. There is a little bit of the old General Grant madness. People are wanting to go and find and are imagining much more gold there that can be found. Yeah, the amount of gold that's in there gets grossly overstated. I'm sure there was more gold aboard than has been suggested, but sometimes the figures are fantastically inflated. I've seen one figure of 770 million New Zealand dollars, I think, which, yeah, that's sort of roughly five times what's likely to have been aboard, I think. People get a bit carried away. But there's General Grant-style stories there as well of passengers knotting bags of gold around their necks and then jumping into the water to swim ashore, that kind of thing. And that's first-hand from James Russell, so it probably happened. Just the madness, the desperation, that human inability to comprehend that things really are as bad as they look. Um, You've got so close to safety that surely God can't have meant you to get ashore safely with all this gold. People do strange things. They were there. Yep, they were. Is there anything left of the ship to see at all? Periodically, storms will uncover the iron remains of her, and there's not a lot of that left. She's 150, 160 years old now, and iron doesn't keep that well. 
she was pretty much smashed apart at the time. So there are scattered ribs and some of her larger structural members. The anchors, chains, bollards, that kind of thing is still there. Bits of steel plate. And I imagine the boilers and the engine block from the, uh, the massive steam engine will, will be there as well. But most of it lies buried beneath the sand most of the time when the sand's not being suctioned off by treasure hunters or by the ocean. The permanent memorial is there in the village and, of course, all those graves as well. Absolutely, yep. What can't be forgotten, of course, is that the Royal Charter wasn't the only casualty of the Royal Charter storm. It's reckoned to have been the most powerful of the 19th century. And in two days, 133 ships were sunk and 90 further ships were badly damaged. And the death toll was 800. That includes the Royal Charter dead, of course, which is nearly, well, it's over half. But that's twice as many in two days as in the whole of the previous year. Wow. It was the biggest accident of a pile-up. <laughs> it's appalling, really, isn't it? John McChrystal, thank you for another dreadful tale. The Royal Charter, 1959. Cheers, Graham. I hope you're enjoying the shipwreck tale, well, essentially replays, but they haven't been played in a long, long, long time. And you wouldn't have heard them for a long time either. That was the story of the Royal Charter, and it hasn't been in the shipwreck tales archive for years uh, because it got missed out. So we're playing them one by one of a week and adding them that way. It's the least amount of work for everybody concerned, all right? Uh, to put them back in the archive. And it's nice to hear them again live on the radio, I'm sure. Or you may have downloaded it on the podcast. Yes, the program is podcast, hour by hour. Uh, so sign up for that and you can yoink it off the internet and take it anywhere you like with you. And spread the word, why not? If you enjoy it, tell other people. Uh, tomorrow night, what have we got happening? Oh, yeah. Uh, she's grim. But amazing as well, the story of Te Rauparaha, uh, the Napoleon of New Zealand, is our Outsiders tale with Gerard Hindmarsh. All of these are going in the archive. The Outsiders archive is completely and utterly update. We put quite a bit of effort into doing that, uh, recovering the ones that got lost. Um, it's like sheep out the back paddock. It hasn't even got a ear tag. We don't know where number 54 is. Um, but we've we found them and putting them up bit by bit. Okay, sorry. Um, Let's uh, give you a little bit of a sample. It's late at night. The kids won't be up, um, but you have a nice day. Uh, here's a little bit of Gerard Hindmarsh from tomorrow night between 11 and 12. Tarapraha was swift. Gone was any sort of diplomatic endeavouring to settle its um, people peacefully on new lands. He rose up with the absolute destruction on his mind and many stories have been documented about what happened but he just went on an absolute bloodbath with local tribes and basically it slowed him down. He was so incessant and thorough how he went about avenging this. Basically he had wiped out the opposition in one go.
their chief who had insulted him and his wife, he brought them back to Kapiti. He cut open his wife's stomach, pulled out her innards, pegged them out and made the chief dance around for two weeks while he killed him slowly with a fern root pounder. Yeah, yeah, she's uh, that sort of tale. But an amazing one. All that viciousness and, I suppose you'd say, modern-day war crimes. Uh, it wasn't an uncommon thing, this sort of ugliness that uh, would go on. But anyway, I don't need to tell you that. Tarapara, an amazing story. A very resourceful man who became very, very powerful in the central North Island. Kapiti was his stronghold. After listening to Jared recording it this week, man, I just felt <clears throat> so much better informed. I suppose this is what these things are for, but it's one of those cases of, oh, I had a vague idea, kind of, about what <coughs> who Tarapuraha was and what he did. But um, a lovely, succinct and clear story. And now we are all better off. Well, I am, and you, I hope you will be tomorrow. Oh, the lovely strains of Keith Mansfield. I just wanted to hear that for a little bit. There are so many versions online if you want to have a look at it. Um, just look up Keith Mansfield, you'll find it. Also tomorrow night, uh, John Divig's back, and we're having a chat oh, with the Indian Ink team about the new show, Mrs. Krishnan's Party. Um, Indian Inc. are world famous now. They go all around the world and sell out a theatre company uh, putting on their shows. Krishnan's Dairy was the famous mask play. This is in celebration of theatre month, September. I do put the question. What do they make of Apu from The Simpsons? That was a, became a bit of a heated debate because it was to do with race, wasn't it? There was a white guy doing Apu. Apu, was it uh, a, a racist mocking figure? A stereotype. A thing about stereotypes. You know, some of them are true. Um, and But it's basically a generalisation, isn't it? And you don't want to generalise about individuals. I actually thought Apu was kind of a rounded character. Had some depth and there was love there. Actually, who on The Simpsons isn't a stereotype? Really. There isn't one. The hopeless, bumbling, stupid, white male father. I think, do you have to say white male father these days? All right. Uh, new sport and weather. Uh, just about to reach you at the end of the pips. Here's the number for Talkback 0800 844 747. 0800 844 747. And happy to take your calls and 
keep you company uh, throughout the early hours of the morning, which I still think is a silly idea, calling it morning. It's night time, isn't it? Uh, mornings where the sun comes up. Oh, that's the Jewish heritage. Okay. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow after 8pm. Have a lovely evening. Uh, media stick with Paul Cassley. Oh, his last hurrah. He's chucking it in. He's too busy doing fancy music stuff. Um, so do listen to Paul tomorrow. Media stick. We um, pair apart tons of stuff from the media from the week. And it's always fun. That'll be kicking off after 8pm. I will have my grievance. Um, grievance number 161 uh, tomorrow after 8. Favourite colour. Why would anyone ask you your favourite colour? It's like asking what's your favourite note. Oh, C sharp.